Welcome to Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and I will be moderating today's forum. The forum originates from Westminster Church in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I would like to thank our co-sponsor for today's forum, the Northern Environmental Support Trust. I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. John DeGraff as the first speaker in our new Town Hall Forum series, Silent Spring Revisited. Forty years ago, Rachel Carson published a book on the declining population of songbirds due to toxins in the environment. What was thought to be a small book on a rather esoteric subject in some ways launched the modern environmental movement. In remembering and commemorating the impact of Carson's book of 1962, the Town Hall Forum will look at environmental issues this spring in a series of three forums. John DeGraff is an appropriate first speaker in our series as we commemorate Carson's groundbreaking work. In keeping with her bold life work on the environment, John DeGraff believes that the quest for a sustainable society that preserves and protects the earth begins with the individual and with our individual choices. The title of his speech today is Affluenza, the All-Consuming Epidemic. Affluenza is the painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of consumer overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Environmentalist, author, and filmmaker John DeGraff uses the metaphor of disease in a humorous way to tackle a very serious subject. The damage done to our health, to our families, our communities, our environment through the obsessive quest for material goods. Mr. DeGraff is author of the book Affluenza, which he also produced as a PBS series. He has produced documentaries primarily for public television for 25 years and is the recipient of nearly 100 national, regional, regional and international awards for filmmaking. Please join me in welcoming to the Town Hall Forum, Mr. John DeGraff. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and uh, it is just really an amazing honor to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled and a little overwhelmed, uh, especially in this incredible place. So I want to thank, thank you all for having me here. In a sense, this is something for me of a homecoming because I used to live in Minneapolis back in the 1970s. And during the short time that I called this city my home, I made some wonderful friendships that continue to this day. People who believe deeply that dedicated citizens could make America more fair, more peaceful, and more sustainable. And it was here, too, that I first got involved in television, producing my first documentaries for Channel 2. One of them was the story of a great strike that took place in this city in 1934. The show was called Labor's Turning Point. It was about the Teamster strike that really shaped much of the future of this city. Another was a story of three courageous farm women who were fighting to save their family farms out in western Minnesota. And this was the early 80s. It was a time when so many small farmers were going bankrupt through no fault of their own but because we as a society didn't value food, the most important and necessary commodity, enough to pay those farmers for growing it. 
I began back, back then to ask some rather simple questions. Why were the people who produced the most necessary commodity, food, becoming eligible for food stamps? While other people grew rich by making things that weren't essential at all, or by using their skills to convince other people to buy things they didn't need at all. It was a question that rather naturally led to others about how much we consume and the impacts of all that consuming on ourselves, our relationships, our families, our communities, and of course, on the earth itself. The more I read, the more I heard over the years, the more troubling those questions became. I never lost my concern about those questions, but at the same time, I certainly never thought that anyone would fund me to make a television program about them. And then one day, at a premiere of another program that I had made, a woman named Vicki Robin came down and approached me. And I hardly knew her, but I did know that she was the author of a best-selling book called Your Money or Your Life, which some of you may have read. And lo and behold, Vicki Robin actually came and literally grabbed me by the shoulders and said, John, you need to make a movie about overconsumption, and I can help you find the money. And I looked at her and I said, Vicki, you just said the magic words. Because as you know, making television is an expensive proposition. So I said, why don't you come down to the TV station, that's the Seattle PBS station, and let's talk about this. And indeed she did help me find the money, and thus was born the television program that came to be called Affluenza. Its broadcast on PBS in 1997 seemed to strike a chord with a lot of people. And it kind of gave us, a, as producers, a good deal of attention, which as a PBS documentary producer I wasn't used to at all. And to a suggestion from a New York literary agent that I write a book on the subject. I needed some help with that. And fortunately, I'd also been approached by two individuals who'd seen the film and wondered if I'd consider working with them to write a book on the subject. One was David Wan. He was an environmental scientist and a former official with the EPA. And the other was a former Duke University economist, Thomas Naylor. So I quickly said yes to both of them, knowing that I needed help and that their expertise could lend the book some additional credibility, which TV producers like myself don't have a lot of, especially now. The book was published last year, and that's what brings me here today to talk to you about affluenza. So what in fact is affluenza? In the book we define it as, I'll say this slowly, a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. It's a disease that I believe has become an epidemic in contemporary America. What you might ask are the symptoms of this terrible disease. I'll run down a few of them, and when I do, just see if you feel a little flushed, a little sweaty, a little itchy, a little nervous. See if you start wondering just where you left the thermometer. I'm going to start with the personal and then move on to the social and environmental symptoms of affluenza. The first one, shopping fever. We Americans are the shopaholics of the world. We spend, on average, about six times as much time shopping as we spend playing with our children, something like six hours uh, per week. The affluenza epidemic has what I would call hot zones, and those you might guess are, are 
giant shopping malls. Now back in 1987, it's only 15 years ago, America had more high schools than it had shopping malls. Today, only 15 years later, we have more than twice as many malls as we have high schools. So you can see just what direction the trend is going. And I suppose I don't need to mention this in a state whose number one tourist destination is a mall. I haven't been there yet, but I've got to check it out. Another symptom, swollen expectations. We've been persuaded that we always need something bigger, faster, newer, something better. Our garages are now as big as our starter homes were in 1950, about the same size in square footage. And our houses are three times as big, even though our family sizes are smaller. Then take cars. They keep getting bigger and bigger, too. Ford Motor Company didn't want its competitor to have the biggest SUV, so they built the Excursion, a foot longer and a thousand pounds heavier than Chevy's Suburban, Ford Tough. Now, Ford Chairman William Clay Ford is fond of saying that he's an environmentalist. And in a speech, he called his own car, the Excursion, the Ford Valdez. This is the chairman of Ford, called it the Ford Valdez, for its propensity to consume fuel and pollute. But he said that Ford would keep making the excursions because we consumers want them, and therefore, they're profitable. The environment be. The excursion is the latest in what you might call the X series, that's EX. They're the explorer, the expedition, the excursion. And I wonder what's next. You can think about this yourself. The exhaustion, the extinction, the exterminator. See how extreme you can be. Figure out the new name of, of, of the next SUV that Ford makes in the X series. Swollen expectations, that symptom of affluenza, lead to chronic congestion. To put it mildly, we're all stuffed up. Our roads are congested. Our landfills are congested. Even our homes are congested. They're so congested, in fact, that we now have 40 times as many commercial self-storage facilities in the United States as we had as recently as 1970. Because there's just so much stuff that's kind of piling out of the house. Some of you may have seen a little TV commercial for, it's actually, I don't know if you have Chevron here, but they have a product called Techron. And the, the little TV commercial shows these animated cars and they're sitting out in front of a garage and they can't be put in the garage because the garage is all full of stuff that's piling out the doors and the car, one little car is complaining to the other car and saying, I never get to go inside, the place is all stuffed up and I can't go in and I'm, you know, rusting and what do I do? And the other car says, it's okay because there's Techron. But, uh, so there's always some kind of answer. Anyway, do you remember what you have in, in yours? Uh, are you getting a little itchy? It might be another symptom, a rash of bankruptcies. When we made the film Affluenza in 1996, the United States savings rate was 4%. We moaned, we groaned. We compared that unfavorably with a Japanese savings rate of 16%. Well, what happened? The four years following 1996 were years of unprecedented prosperity when real incomes went up for all Americans, even for the poor. 
we might have expected an increase in savings, more money, more to put in the bank, right? Nope. Instead, our savings rate fell to zero. And in fact, in every one of the past five years, more Americans have declared personal bankruptcy than have graduated from college. More, in fact, than did so during the Great Depression. And still, they keep sending those credit card offers. How many do you get a week? And count them. And still, our president tells us that the answer to our problems is to spend even more. When Barbara Bush asked her son, W, what she could do to help America in its hour of need after September 11th, he looked her in the eye and he said, Mom, buy, buy, buy. And lest I be seen as a partisan here, the other party was just as eager to be a cheerleader for affluenza. Willie Brown, the Democratic mayor of San Francisco, sent out a million posters with a big picture of the American flag on them as a shopping bag with shopping handles. And you might have thought this was some kind of joke, mocking America's shopping passion, but no, not at all. The headline on these posters was America Open for Business, and the poster encouraged Americans to go out and spend, spend, spend. My own US Senator, Patty Murray, also a Democrat, introduced what she called her Let's Go Shopping Bill, calling for a moratorium on sales taxes to get people to spend more. She was on national public radio and interviewed, and she said that when she and her daughter need a pick-me-up, they go shopping. When we're down in the dumps, we just go out and shop, it makes us feel better. And now, uh, Senator Murray said the whole country needs a pick-me-up, so hence the let's go shopping bill. It didn't, didn't pass. These sorts of things are supposed to strengthen a country that's already in debt up to its ears. It's hard to know what to do if you want to be patriotic. Do you enlist in the army or just spend until you're bankrupt? Either way, it's stressful. And so is the overwork we're all putting in to keep up with the proverbial, proverbial Joneses. It's yet another symptom of affluenza. We call it the stress of excess. We Americans are number one. We're the workaholics of the industrial world. We passed the Japanese for that dubious honor in October of 1999. We not only shop till we drop, we work till we drop. I remember when I was a college student back in the 1960s, so you can see how old I am, I studied sociology. You know, we sociology students at that time were told that American society would be facing a big, big problem at the end of the 20th century. It wasn't affluenza. Can you guess what it was? Anybody volunteer guess? Leisure time, right, smart group here. We were told that we would have so much leisure time on our hands that we wouldn't know what to do with it. What with a 15-hour, 20-hour work week coming as a result of automation and cybernation? So much for the conventional wisdom and its powers of prediction because the time hasn't come. You know how it turned out. We got the technology, we got the productivity, but we didn't get the time. In fact, we're working more now than we were in the 1960s when we were being told that this age of leisure was coming. We're working nearly a month more per person on average annually than we were in the 60s when you count all the hours. We've taken all of our productivity gains, nearly a tripling of productivity, that is we can make things about three times as fast as we could in those years after World War II. We've taken all of that in the form of more stuff and none of it in the form of more time. Think about this. 
for a moment. We could add 10 years of leisure, 10 years of leisure to our lives just by living like the average continental European. You do the math with me for a minute. With their shorter work weeks, an average of six weeks or more of vacation, they put in, the average European, about 1,600 hours of work per year per person. We put in 2,000 on average. So we put in 400 hours, 10 full weeks more of work each year. That's one-fifth of a year, 10, 10 full weeks. So continue to extrapolate with me, do the math. They work one year less than we do every five years and 10 years less over the course of a working lifetime. Simply by working as they do, we would add 10 years of leisure of time to do many of the things that all of us need doing to our lives. And yet, the Western Europeans are hardly poverty-stricken. You've been there, I'm sure you know that. And their interest in time crosses all political lines. I want to read to you what Ruud Lubbers, the former conservative prime minister of Holland, said about this. And, quote, it is true that the Dutch are not aiming to maximize gross national product per capita. Rather, we are seeking to attain a high quality of life, a just, participatory, and sustainable society. While the Dutch economy is very efficient per working hour, the number of working hours per citizen are rather limited. We like it that way. Needless to say, there is more room for all those important aspects of our lives for which we are not paid and for which there is never enough time. He represents the Conservative Party. How I wish our leaders were as wise. We're paying for the stress of excess in many ways. Take health. I've had doctors call me and say that more than half of their patients' physical problems were the direct result of the stress that results from our keeping up with the Joneses' lifestyle. They tell me that affluenza isn't just a funny word I thought it was. It's a real disease. One doctor wrote me and even told me that he asks his patients to watch the affluenza video as the first step in their treatment rather than giving them a pill because so many of their direct physical complaints result from the stress of this overworked, over-consuming lifestyle. We also pay in other ways. As overwork leads to de decreased time for families and our consuming passion leads to family conflicts over money, the leading cause of most divorces, we call the symptom family convulsions. Family life, as you may know, takes time. You know, you've probably seen those. We have them out in Seattle. I don't know if they have them here, but we have bumper stickers that say, hate is not a family value. And uh, I, I want one that says time is a family value. It's also a community value, because building community takes time. It takes time to know your neighbors. It takes time to volunteer. President Bush says that he wants to increase volunteerism, and I applaud him for that. I think that would be an excellent idea. But just two days ago, he also said that he wanted to make welfare mothers work 40 hours a week instead of just 30. I think he got it backwards. I think he ought to encourage all of us to work 30, and then we'd have time to volunteer for the things he thinks we need to volunteer for. There's another symptom of affluenza that it seems like nearly everyone can relate to, particularly, I think, if you're a parent, 
We call that symptom dilated pupils. More, more than 60% of all Americans think our children are too materialistic, but that's no accident because kids are the hottest target for marketing dollars today. Marketers who talk openly, very openly, of what they call capturing, owning, and branding our kids. So if you've seen some of these marketing conventions, it's pretty amazing the choice of words they use, thinking of kids as cattle, I guess. Those marketers are spending about 20 times as much to reach kids today as they did as recently as 1980. And they feel that what they have to do is to get around parents who in their language are the gatekeepers and head directly to the, to the kids uh, with messages that will break the hold that these gatekeepers have on the target population. And they're trying to reach our kids wherever they are, especially in schools. And I don't know what's happening here in Minnesota. I know in, in Seattle, we just, uh, we just had a turnaround, which I was very happy about, in which our school system decided, decided to turn away from commercialism. They're getting rid of Channel One. They're getting rid of commercials in the schools. Uh, the PTA worked long and hard to try to make that happen, and the city council and the school board have, have decided that that's what we ought to do. I think that's a good thing. But I've been, for instance, in high schools in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where you can walk through the halls of the high schools, and you will see one billboard after another that say such things as, and I'm not making this up, M&Ms are better than straight A's. Or here's another one. I love this one. Satisfy your hunger for higher education with Snickers. This is real. I, I, I'm Dave, like Dave Barry always. If you read Dave Barry, he, he has most of what he, he you know is kind of a joke, but every so often he says, I'm not making this up because it's something that's so preposterous you would assume that he's making it up, but no, no, I'm, I'm not. And all the ads that I saw in the Colorado Springs high schools were the, for the very kinds of junk food that the kids were warned against in their health classes. Now schools are a target because up until recently there weren't many ads in schools. And marketers are always looking for places to put the ads where there aren't many ads. They call those places uncluttered. That's where they want to put the ads. Who knows, churches may be next. Can you imagine coming in here someday and seeing sort of in the back of the pews little, little ads? This is, this is I don't know how many people saw this ad, but there, there was an ad for, for an insurance company in magazines recently, and the ad showed a cemetery with a row of gravestones, and on each gravestone there's a little square, and then in the middle of the square it said, your ad here. And it, it seems kind of wild, but, but believe me, there's probably people thinking about doing just that. Because in, in the age of affluenza, marketing messages are everywhere. More and more, all the time, seducing us, literally, in my view, to get sick. A few more each day so we don't notice until we're totally engulfed in a sea of commercials. What's next? Some people are salivating over, this is real too, I'm not making this up, outer space. They want to project logos that would be about the size of the moon into the night skies. So you might see the constellation, golden arches, things of, you know, look out there. And you could imagine some of the new advertising jingles. You know that song that goes, when the moon fills the sky, 
So be, when the moon fills the sky like a big pizza pie, it's dominoes. There are people who want to do this. I mean, again, so far they haven't been able to. It seems like the sky is the limit right now, and, and, and it, it, it's limiting them. But down on Earth, you can do anything you want. And one thing this to totally commercial world leaves us with, I think, and I think it's appropriate that we talk about this in, in church, is an ache for meaning in our society. What really matters in terms of our values, what's important to us, when literally everything is for sale or somebody thinks it should be? When Mother Teresa visited the United States many years ago, she said, this is the poorest country in the world. Remember, she came from Calcutta. And she wasn't speaking, of course, of Wall Street or anything like that. She was speaking of spiritual poverty. Jesus once asked, what does it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his soul? And it's a question that I think we ought to ask. And if we did, we might get a handle on this affluenza epidemic. Then there's the issue of social justice. We may be the richest country in the world in a material sense, but we're also the least egalitarian. Of 22 industrial nations, the US ranks dead last in distribution of wealth, down from number 13 in 1980. The rich are getting richer and the poor poorer. And I don't need to tell you that. I think we see the evidence all the time. And it's hard, especially when you're poor, because you get the same kind of messages. The poor watch just as much TV as the rest of us do. And they're all being told that they have to have the things. And uh, I, I've talked to poor parents who say, you know, my, my kids just really, they, they believe they've got to have the Air Jordans and, and the uh, the, the brand name products and, and we can't afford it and I'm, I'm afraid that they'll find some other way to get it. So finally there's the whole question of the environment. And there the symptoms of affluenza are resource, what we call resource exhaustion and industrial diarrhea. Consider this, in the past 50 years, in the past 50 years we Americans alone have used up more resources than did everyone who ever lived on the Earth before that period. In 50 years, we've used more resources than everybody who ever lived anywhere on Earth before we came along. I want to read you a recent item from the uh, Internet. Actually, I think time-wise I better not. So anyway, let, let me... Let me continue here. Our affluenza lifestyle simply isn't sustainable, and I think we know it. Deep down inside, hundreds of Nobel Prize winners have warned us that our overconsumption is threatening the life support systems of the planet Earth. And scientists have calculated that if the rest of the world were to adopt the American lifestyle anytime soon, we'd need four planets to support them. In other words, we're three planets short. We can't grow on like this. So what can we do? The cure for affluenza, I believe, is both personal and it's social and political. On a personal level, it's obvious that all of us maybe ought to give more thought to how we spend and what we buy. I recommend the book, Your Money or Your Life, it's for particular for people who haven't thought about that too much, and just to take a month and really write everything down and say, what am I spending? How much am I working for the things how long do they last? What do I do with them? Uh, and, and really see if you're getting uh, some kind of value 
for for what you're spending and, and people are often very shocked when they do that simple experiment and write everything down for a month and they see really how much in a way they fritter away. I suggest that we all practice safe shopping and that's easy. You put your credit card and I know all of you only have one but you put it into a little envelope. We've made these little envelopes and the, the little envelopes have a series of questions on the outside. They say things like, do I really need this? Could I borrow it? What were the real costs of making it? Is it reusable or at least recyclable? You have your credit card in this, so you pull it out. We, we, we sometimes call these credit card condoms. You pull the, the, uh, the card out and you're, you, you know, if, you, if you think about it, if you read the questions and if you consider them, I guarantee you'll be protected against reckless spending. I always say, remember, don't leave home without it. On a social level, join with your friends in what are called simplicity study circles. They're popping up all around the country. There are different places you can go, like uh, simplicitycircles.com on the, on the web to find out where they exist, people in their homes, in their schools, neighborhoods, just getting together with friends, with family members, with colleagues at work, and talking about the things that they can do to scale back and to help each other do that as they scale back. In your neighborhood, begin sharing tools and household appliances. Every house doesn't need one of everything, and you find that you get the same benefit out of these material items, but you also can build community at the same time. Check the web for resources, as I mentioned, and you can find some of them on our PBS Affluenza website. That's www.pbs.org slash affluenza. You'll find there also links to many other organizations. But affluenza won't be cured by personal action alone. We need public policies that can make society more simplicity friendly. And I have a lot of ideas about that, but I'm only going to talk primarily about one because we don't have so much too much time. First and foremost, in my mind, we need a renewed national dialogue about the choice between time and money. We had one back in the 1920s and the 1930s. When Henry Ford's assembly line came along, it had people realizing that industrial methods were rapidly increasing the productivity of labor. And back then, both labor leaders and religious leaders were arguing that most of the time that increased productivity would free up for all of us should be used to give people leisure, time for children, time for families, time for friendship, community, citizenship, education, time to experience the glory of nature, and to get to know God, whatever our particular spiritual tradition might be. That's what they were calling for back then. They called for a 30-hour work week, labor leaders, all of them were saying we don't just need stuff forever, we, we need time. And back in 1933, the United States Senate actually passed a bill that would have made 30 hours a week the, the uh, official U.S. work week. Anything more would be overtime. This happened April 6, 1933. It failed by only a few votes in the House of Representatives. And some companies, like the Kellogg's Company in Battle Creek, Michigan, actually 
instituted the 30-hour work week with excellent results. It, it later changed when benefits became a bigger part of the, the work package. But for many years, Kellogg's had a 30-hour work week. I had the opportunity of interviewing some older workers in Battle Creek who had experienced that and who talked about how when things went back to 40 hours, crime went up, people didn't see each other, they had more stuff, but they didn't have the same quality of life. We desperately, that, we desperately need time. How is it that a country that can unlock the secrets of the atom and the genome can't find a way to deal with recession without simply casting millions of people out of work? Why don't we put the recess into recession? Why don't we shorten everybody's hours and ensure that everyone can earn a decent life livelihood? What Pope uh, Leo XIII uh, called back in his encyclical Rerum Novarum in 1891, he called it a life of frugal comfort. And that's something to, to think about. He said that everyone should be guaranteed, that the breadwinners and families should be guaranteed a living or family wage that would ensure a life of frugal comfort, something we could talk about again today. Half of them, all Americans say they trade a day's pay for a day off work each week. Why don't we let them? This is very much an environmental issue. If we can't get a handle on growth, if we believe that the only way we can solve the problems of increasing productivity is by just making more and more stuff and keeping people employed 40 hours and more a, work, a week, we are never going to find limits that will allow us to, to create a sustainable society. The Earth just cannot stand this constant expansion of economic activity. So we've, we've got to solve this time issue. We've got to trade money for time. There are many other things that we can do and we need to do to conquer the affluenza epidemic, but beginning to trade money for time and use our advances in productivity to increase our self-chosen leisure time seems to me the most immediate. So I'll stop. I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you so much for listening to me. Please go out and change the world. And remember, there's no present like the time. Thank you. Thank you, John DeGraff. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, moderator of today's forum. Today's guest is John DeGraff, who has just spoken on affluenza, the all-consuming epidemic. While the ushers collect questions from our audience here at Westminster, I would like again to thank the Northern Environmental Support Trust for their co-sponsorship of today's forum and the General Mills Foundation for its ongoing support of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Now, Mr. DeGraff, if you would return to the pulpit, we will begin the questions. Your comments on affluenza and in your book and in your speech just now uh, raise the possibility of loss of profit for business. Now, what kind of reaction do you get from the business community to your ideas? It's an interesting one. Uh, so far, actually, most of the, the reviews of the book that have uh, I've seen in business magazines and such have been remarkably positive. I'm, makes me a little nervous in a way because it's, I'm thinking may, maybe we're not hitting hard enough or something, but actually they have been. And I think the reason is because uh, people throughout our society are 
starting to, to realize, I think, that this just can't go on forever. I mean, we're getting just too many signals from the Nobel scientists, from, from, from everybody. And, and I talk to, to business people, not necessarily uh, corporation heads, but I've been talking to people in business and management schools who are really saying, we do need to, to deal with this. We need to figure out some things. We need to train MBAs who know how to begin to solve problems like recessions and things without throwing everybody out. There are ways that this can be done. And uh, we businesses, I think, still can make a profit, but they need to, to, to produce things that, that people actually need and products that are of, of higher quality. I think that we can make this change. I don't think it's necessarily going to be easy, but I, I think we can do it. As my hero and mentor, David Brower, uh, founder of Friends of the Earth and longtime leader of the Sierra Club, put it, there won't be any corporations on a dead planet. And I think many business leaders are starting to understand that as well. You imply that affluenza is a pe peculiarly American problem. Is there something unique about our history or our culture, our social order, that has resulted in this condition? I don't want to say that affluenza is a uniquely American problem or even that it's a brand new problem. What I will say is that it's more advanced. The epidemic is more widespread in this country than in any other. I think that in, uh, in the European countries and other industrial countries, uh, there's still a lot of affluenza, I mean, and, and a lot, lot of the, the, the lifestyle. But people are beginning to talk about this in a serious way, and they are beginning to say, hey, hey, uh, you know, time is important to us as well. There are more dialogues about shortening working hours, for example, in Sweden and France and the Netherlands, where they already work 400 hours less than we do than, than we have in this country. It's, it's not a peculiarly American problem, but we have it worse than any other country, I think. This is a question from one of the high school students from South High. Since consumerism is the religion of capitalism, how would you reorganize or transform our current economic system? Oh, boy. <laughs> in in two minutes, please. I, I, yeah, I congratulate <laughs> high school students for asking this question, and, and I, I think I don't have uh, an answer that I can give to you in that short a period of time. I think it's got to start first with, with beginning to talk about these things and having this discussion everywhere, particularly in the business schools. But honestly, I think the, the ideas are going to come from young people and from the folks who are in high school now. And the change away from affluenza isn't going to happen overnight. If it did, it probably wouldn't necessarily be a great thing. It would create so much dislocation. that, that uh, but, but I think it's going to take a generation if we're so fortunate that it happens at, at all. Um, I just, this is, this is a huge issue. Uh, I think that there are, there are people even in this city who are looking at how we can change corporations. I know Marjorie Kelly, who wrote the book, The Divine Right of Capital, that's out, that's just looking at ways that we might restructure corporations so that we can do this better. I don't think we have to completely throw out our economic system. We haven't found one that, that works better, but I think we, we, uh, we need to think carefully about what's important, but we have to ask the question, what's an economy for? Is an economy to serve us so that we meet our needs and that we pass on a sustainable planet to future generations? 
or are we here to serve the economy and do we have to simply respond to any of the economy's needs? The economy needs us to grow. The economy needs us to trash the earth. We, we have to take control. Do you have any specific suggestions for policies, say, around tax law or uh, other governmental uh, legislation that could help us begin to rid ourselves of affluenza? Well, of course, I mentioned shorter working hours, and I think that, would, that wouldn't necessarily be just a 30-hour work week, there are many ways that we could do that. It's, a, it's something that I'm working on with a number of people to try to come up with, with some of those ideas. I think green taxes are an important thing. I think we really need to change our tax system so we start taxing much more seriously those forms of consumption that are wasteful of resources, that are destructive, that, that take away from future generations. I think uh, consumption taxes uh, might be a better answer then uh, putting everything on the income tax or certainly the payroll tax. The economist uh, Robert Frank, who wrote a book called Luxury Fever, has a, has a good proposal for how a consumption tax might work, so that really the more you consume, the higher you pay, not just the more that you earn. This is a question related to that about the 40-hour work week. Do you know what the history of that is, how long we have been working with a, that assumption that a full-time job is 40 hours? Officially since uh, 1938 with the passage of the Wagner Labor Relations Act, which made 40 hours the official work week in this country, uh, that was five years after Congress almost made 30 hours the official work week in this country. So it hasn't really changed since 1938, and uh, well, doing the math, what is that, 60, 64 years, um, we've been living with 40-hour official week, but now, the average work week for most Americans is actually considerably more than 40 hours. And uh, it seems to be going up instead of down. Most public figures in America who serve as our role models are affluent, at least somewhat rich and famous. Can you identify some public figures who epitomize the values you espouse and might serve as alternative role models? Well, we had, we've had public uh, officials in this country talk about the necessity of, of living more simply and wasting less. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was one of them way back around the turn of the century. I can think of one of our current uh, political leaders who used to talk about this a lot, who in, back in 1992 wrote a very wonderful book, which I would recommend that everyone read, called Earth and the Balance. And you probably know his name, it's Al Gore. Back in 92, if you read that book, Al Gore says virtually all, very much the same kind of things that I'm saying here today, that this kind of lifestyle is unsustainable, we can't keep it up, it's not uh, uh, good for us anyway, it's affecting our mental health, all those things. Somehow, after he became vice president, and this is something that I'll remember, is that when, when in the most recent debates, when Gore was, was debating Bush, it was Gore who was saying he was going to make the economy increase by 30% in the next 10 years. And Bush said, no, I can do even better than that. But, you know, what, what happened to Al Gore? It's like some kind of mind snatcher came and, and took him away. And I think it leads to another thing, which we really need campaign finance reform in this country if we're going to get any politician who's going to talk about these things. you comment on the spread of affluenza globally? You've referred to Western Europe several times. What about in other nations, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere? 
I'm not in a good position to comment too much on this, but one thing that uh, is, I, I think, is significant is that the people in many places are very, very worried about this. The film affluenza, interestingly enough, has been extremely popular in places where I wouldn't think affluenza would be a problem. I've got letters and emails from people around the world from places as diverse as Nigeria and Estonia and Nepal. Uh, and I, I even had a request from northern Burma, from people who work with a hill tribe called, uh, uh, that speak a language called Kachin, and they requested that they be allowed to translate the film into the Kachin language because they were so worried about the spread of the American lifestyle way out in the mountains of, of northern Burma. Of course, we gave them permission to do so. But uh, Eastern Europe, particularly, the, the, uh, the US government, I'm sure, wasn't particularly fond of this film, but actually the European Union gave us uh, money for the right to, and they did this, to translate the film and distribute to libraries throughout the former Soviet Union because there was so much fear of the sudden boom in this disease, affluenza with a small portion of the population who were suddenly, with the, with the turn to capitalism, getting very, very rich while large portions of the population actually were worse off. Another question from our students at South High who were here. What do you think it would take to get people to reduce consumption by 50% in this country? Oh. I, I don't know. And, and I don't know that they have to do that. I, I, I think, in fact, some, some, uh, some studies have shown that, that actually if we're, if we're sensible, if we produce goods that last, if we uh, reward frugality and, and, and uh, if we're careful about how we do things, we could actually have a lifestyle sustainable over, over time for the entire world that would be about equal to the average lifestyle in Europe in 1990. That is not a poor lifestyle. I don't think we have to go back to the cave. I don't think it's this kind of thing at all. I think we need to turn around gradually. And one of the things that I think we can begin doing is saying, at least from now on, why don't we start giving working people the choice to take time instead of money? Why isn't that at least part of every package to say, if, if our productivity is increasing, why can't we have a day, two, I mean, an hour, two, three uh, more off work a week instead of getting higher salaries. We can move in that direction. It's just going to take to change it, and we, I don't know about 50%, but just to reduce it to where it needs to be, the first thing we need is a real major national dialogue about what's happening. This is a question from someone who retired at age 55 to have more free time and who is a part of a simple living group in, in her church. Now please comment on Buy Nothing Day, which is the fourth Friday of November. Yes, it's the day after Thanksgiving, which, which until we ran out of time was the, the biggest shopping day of the year. Now actually the biggest shopping day of the year is the Saturday before Christmas because people are so pressed for time that they put everything off and so they're, they're you know. But uh, Buy Nothing Day is really, you know, it, it's, it's, it's humorous, it's intended, but it's intended to get people to think and people actually go out to the shopping malls and places like that on the the day after Thanksgiving, and they encourage people not to buy anything, to spend one day and just say, we're not gonna, we're not gonna spend money today. We're gonna think about this, and we're gonna think about these kind of issues. 
And it's, it's kind of taken off. I mean, it's in many countries around the world now. Um, I had a request a couple of years ago from a 16-year-old girl in Tel Aviv, in Israel, who asked uh, if she could have permission to project my film, Affluenza, onto the wall, the outer wall of a big shopping mall in Tel Aviv for, for Buy Nothing Day. And I emailed back and I said, more power to you. You certainly have my permission to do so. Whether she did or not, I don't know. But I think it's a, it's a neat idea. Can you say something about your own personal experiences that have caused you to be such a, a proponent of ridding ourselves of influenza? Without going into too much detail about that, I, I always think about an experience I had back in 1969 when I was a teacher at a Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding school in Shiprock, New Mexico on the Navajo Indian Reservation. And at that time I was teaching 10-year-old kids. And these were the poorest kids, really, literally, in America. I mean, they came to the school with a couple of shirts, a pair of shoes, and virtually nothing else. And the school had a little more. I mean, we had maybe a football, and there was uh, you know, a field to play on, and a basketball, but very little for these kids. And yet, I never had a single one of those kids ever say to me, ever, that they were bored. They always were figuring out things to do. They were a happy bunch of kids. That changed later as they became more exposed to racism and as, as alcoholism hit uh, their families and things like that. So I, I don't want to say that the, these kids' lifestyle later on was a great one. But at that time, these were incredibly well-adjusted kids who knew what to do. I had a brother who was 10 years old, a uh, little, little older than that at the same time. And uh, I went back home at Christmas from the break from the school. And my brother and his friends, would, you know, the, the house was like a bargain basement. I mean, they had, they got so many things, so many packages under the tree and everything, and the kids would be ripping through these things and flipping them aside and to see what the next one was, and they'd get excited for two minutes, and it'd be put aside. A couple of days later, all of these toys that they were so wild about were in a corner, and, the, and my brother and his friends were saying to me, we don't have anything to do. And that really kind of, I think, locked it for me that, that the lifestyle of stuff is not necessarily uh, a happier and, and more useful lifestyle for people. Thank you very much, Mr. John DeGraff. Spoke to us today on the subject of affluenza, the all-consuming epidemic. The next Westminster Town Hall Forum will be held Thursday, April 25th. Our speaker will be Steve McCormick, the new president of the Nature Conservancy, speaking for the first time in Minnesota about his map of hope, conservation for the real world. I hope you will join us on Thursday. April 25th, the pre-forum concert will begin at 11.30. Thank you for coming today, and those interested in purchasing a book can do so out the door to your left. Thank you, John. Thank you all. Thank you.